Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle 24 with me, Markus Hippi. Over the next 60 minutes we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle 24 with highlights from our studios here at Midori House and from around the world. This week, as America commemorates the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, the veteran journalist and political advisor Bill Crystal tells us about that day's lasting impact on the United States. I've always wondered if people in New York and D.C. had a sort of different experience or personal experience of 9-11 than people around the country. It was a shock to, to all Americans and America rallied and, and so forth. But there's something about if you were in New York or D.C., it really... You know, it felt different. Plus, as the iconic title Private Eye celebrates 60 years, we hear about a new book chronicling the publication's take on the last six decades. It's such a pleasure when you're next door kind of bashing out an investigative piece on on some politician who's been doing something naughty. Just to hear the gales of laughter that come out of that, because the joke writing is done basically as a, a competition to see who can make each other laugh the most and try and top each other's laugh each time. So that makes for a really nice atmosphere to be working in. All that and much, much more. More over the next hour here on The Curator with me, Marcus Hippi. As we look back on the week that was, it seems, only right to take a closer look at what we know now that we didn't seven days ago, here is Monaco's contributing editor Andrew Muller with this week's What We Learned. We learned this week that the philosophical journey undertaken by the Taliban since they last held power in Afghanistan may have been a short one. Taliban spokesperson Zabihullah Mujahid announced what he described as an interim government, although it is worth bearing in mind that interim is one of your handily relative euphemisms. And we learned from the makeup thereof that the difference between Taliban 1.0 and Taliban 2.0 may be smaller than might have been hoped by that small but hardy band of eccentrics defined as optimistic observers of Afghanistan. We learned that fully four members of the new government of Afghanistan are former inmates of Guantanamo Bay, and among other headline appointments, Prime Minister Mullah Hassan Akhund, who is under personal sanctions by the United Nations, Minister of Defence Mullah Yaqub, son of founding Taliban Emir Mullah Omar, and Minister of the Interior Malawi Sirajuddin Haqqani, a wanted terror suspect with $10 million of the FBI's money on his head. We have not learned, as we do not wish to waste police time, but do suspect that the feds are not going to regard he's in the defence ministry in Kabul as quite meeting the definition of information leading directly to the arrest of. Still, the thought-slash-devastating satirical insight does occur that if the Taliban do find foreign investment difficult to come by, they can always raise a few quid by turning each other in, which, given the general conduct of Afghan politics, shouldn't be altogether ruled out as a possibility. Anyway, we learned that there is one man who does know how this all could have been handled better. Yes. 
Former US President Benito Cartman still banished from social media but still pounding his keyboard with tiny clenched orange fists in his garish Florida redoubt, issued a statement cleverly, actually no that's not the word we meant idiotically, yoking the Taliban's ascendancy to this week's dismantling in the former Confederate capital of Richmond, Virginia, of a statue of Confederate Commander General Robert E. Lee. As is traditional, here to voice the thoughts of Donald Trump with the solemn gravitas they invariably merit is Monocle 24's Culture War Desk Chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. If only we had Robert E. Lee to command our troops in Afghanistan, that disaster would have ended in a complete and total victory many years ago. What an embarrassment. We're suffering because we don't have the genius of a Robert E. Lee. We learned, therefore, that Trump does not appear to have learned that Lee lost, like a massive loser. General George Meade, who stomped Lee at Gettysburg, might have been a more coherent choice, but then Meade was actually on the United States side, which always seems to irritate Trump for some scarcely imaginable reason. (coughs) Moving seamlessly along, let's have some generic Russian music. You know, mournful accordion ballads about barges, that kind of thing. We learned from Russia of an innovation in electoral shenanigans which may be helpful to Donald Trump's opponents in rigging the next election against him as well. Assuming they can find in Florida a few more angry old guys with weird wigs and sunbed tans and do you know that might just about be possible. We learned that one Boris Vizhnevsky of the liberalish Yabloko party faces unusual obstacles in his bid to keep his seat in the St. Petersburg Legislative Assembly in elections later this month. Specifically, Boris Vizhnevsky faces two rival candidates, both called Boris Vizhnevsky, who both bear a remarkable physical resemblance to Boris Vizhnevsky. The two bogus Borises have not merely changed their names by deed poll, but with the aid of either barbers or Photoshop, have also appropriated the real Vishnevsky's close-cropped hair and dashing grey beard. We learned from looking into this further that such doppelganger spoilers are actually not that unusual in Russian elections. So we've learned that not everyone who runs in Russian elections is taking the result for granted. Quite heartwarming, really. Yeah. Right? And we learned that ducks can swear, and you've already seen the punchline coming, so let's just get through this as quickly as possible. An Australian musk duck resident of the Tidbinbilla Nature Reserve near Canberra appears to have internalised a couple of key phrases of human speech, including this. That was a duck which has apparently learned to say, you bloody fool. So yes, it's an example of... Language. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Moore.
Thanks, Andrew. As Andrew just mentioned, this week saw the announcement of a new government in Afghanistan. The Taliban's new cabinet sees no women, no opposition voices, nor any significant minority figures in ministerial positions. Instead, the country's interim rulers are the old guard, and images coming out of the country suggest they have brought back their old ways too. A demonstration by women shut down violently, pictures of sore and beaten backs reportedly belonging to the journalists arrested while covering the story. For Thursday's edition of The Globalist, Monocle's Emma Nelson was joined in the studio by Saad Maseni, the founder and chairman of the Moby Media Group. Saad fled Afghanistan last month as it fell to the Taliban. Emma began by asking Saad how he will handle potential new media laws under Taliban rule. Every single day there's a program about women's rights or women's education or freedom of expression. So so there's this ongoing debate and we're forcing the Taliban to address these issues. I mean, they have said time and time and time again publicly that women will be allowed to go to school or university or uh, be able to work. And they've allowed women to go back to work and they've allowed women to go attend university, segregating students with a curtain in the middle of the classroom. Nonetheless, they've been allowed to go in. So I think the public discourse is helping in some ways. But at the end of the day, these people don't care about public opinion. And while you may have individuals who are going to agree with you to an extent, the leadership could say, well, enough's enough. No more women at work, no more women at schools and universities. So we can see the the regime snap at some stage. And this is the real danger. Tell us a little bit about the dangers that with, with that. Um, it took them how long? More than two weeks to bring in an interim government which was not made up of any new, fresh or different figures. It was, as many have said, you know, the old guard, the Taliban leaders from two, three decades ago. Some have suggested that that means that there is a lot of internal unrest within the Taliban as to who should be leading, who's in charge. What have you heard there? What are your thoughts? It's probably that. I think that there obviously there is this sort of uh, tug of war going on within the movement itself. You have three deputies. You have Mullah Omar San, Mullah Yaqub, who's now the defense minister. He's one force. And you have Mullah Brother, who's the old guard, helped found the Taliban movement uh, in the early 90s. He represents another wing. And then, of course, you have the Haqqanis sort of added for, for weeks now. And I think eventually what they agreed to was let's take on the big roles. So then they become ours. Uh, we establish what our territory is. And then in two or three months, if we introduce a proxy or we introduce someone to represent us, that we could do that. But I think initially it was about marking their territory. The issue with the Taliban is they have no sense, sense of urgency in terms of how this crisis this country is facing, which is a massive humanitarian as well as an economic crisis, of course, on top of the political crisis. So not understanding this, I think, is, is of great concern. I mean, $8.5 billion a year came from the international community. That's like 40, 45% of our GDP. You know, we have 600,000 internally displaced individuals. We have a drought right now that the country's, uh, country has to deal with. So they really have to get their act together very quickly if they don't want to have hundreds of thousands of people starve to death. Tell us a little bit more about those within what's known as the interim government. I'm not entirely sure what interim means in this case. Caretaker government. A caretaker government until what happens? Because if you're bringing back old figures from 20 years ago, how interim does this mean? I mean, when when is a real government going to arrive? When what, what's turned up seems to look very much like 
what might stay around. Yes, I, I, you know, I don't think anyone knows. I don't think the Taliban know. So you have, as prime minister, you have this guy, Maulay Hassan Akhund, who was a former deputy prime minister and a former foreign minister, apparently not sophisticated, well, most of them are not, but uh, he spent time in prison in Pakistan after 9-11. He's seen as a sort of a gentle, moderate, everything's relative, by the way, gentle, moderate individual. So that's a plus. A lot of people have said that, you know, who, who've known him, that, that he's not going to be this hardcore Taliban-type figure. You've got Mullah Yaqub, Mullah Omar's son as the defense minister. I mean, he's a force to reckon with because he's he wants to be tough to because he wants to prove that he's his father's son. You have the Haqqanis who ironically seem to be the more moderate faction in that they're more open to the world. They want to be engaged. They want to have relations with our neighbors. They understand the importance of the economy. And then you have a lot of other people, uh, in particular from the Kandahar faction, let's call it, who are very conservative. They don't care if the country is isolated. They don't care if half the country starves to death. They view that as God's will. So you have these, these different factions added right now, and we're not sure who's going to prevail. But what's important is that, like you said, pointed out, it's not broad-based, it's not inclusive, it's not forward-looking. It's difficult to, to remain optimistic. That's not to say that the world should not engage with them. And I think it's really important at this juncture to continue to engage with them. We've already seen China engage with them. They have. You know, China has said we are. You know, we are going to continue with aid. We are going to continue with investment. I mean, is the Taliban ready to deal with the likes of China and Russia? I think they're going to have buyer's remorse if they if they don't have it already. Because for the Chinese, this semi-assurance that we're not going to host the Uyghurs, and it's, it's complete rubbish. I think that for the Taliban, they're very ideologically driven. These people, it's not about just their movement. I mean, they, they have thousands of kids who are willing to blow themselves up. They believe in this ideology. They're not going to necessarily turn their backs on these uh, Islamist groups, whether they're in, in Chechnya or in China or in Pakistan. So I think eventually the Chinese will regret and rue their decision to... I mean, for them, it's, it's about humiliating the Americans. But now the Americans are gone, so now they have to really deal with the Taliban. And when it comes to the likes of the Americans, and I know you've been travelling around in, in, in the last couple of weeks talking to the likes of you know, German organisations trying to work out how to approach the Taliban, is there any sense that anybody has idea as to what to do? I mean, we, we listened to, the, uh, to Anthony Blinken in the United States choosing his words incredibly carefully as to how mm. there was an acceptance that they need to engage with the Taliban but without engaging with the Taliban. I mean, they should, these people should be ashamed of themselves. They, you know, representing the United States of America, there is absolutely no vision. They're bland and boring, and they have nothing of substance to, to come up with. The problem right now, the challenge for the world, whether it's for your government or for the Germans, for the Americans, is this continued evacuation of former translators and let's call them collaborators or uh, partners. But the problem for us Afghans is, it's important to get these, you know, 20 or 30 or, or 40 or 1,000 people out. But what about the 38 million people who are going to remain in the country? What's your strategy for the country? They're, right now, it's all tactical. How do we get people out? And for, uh, what we're asking is, what about the rest of the, the country who will need your help? Finally, in a couple of words, your thoughts on Ashraf Ghani saying sorry for leaving. Well, it's ironic that he, sorry to the Afghan people, but issued in English. That tells you a lot. He couldn't care less. Saad Masseni, the founder and chairman of the Moby Media Group, in conversation with Monaco's Emma Nelson earlier this week. 
This weekend marks the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks on New York and Washington, D.C. The day itself not only had a profound effect on those cities, but has dictated the course of UN foreign policy ever since. Monaco's news editor Chris Chemek has been speaking to the veteran journalist and U.S. foreign policy expert Bill Crystal. Chris began by asking Bill what he remembers about the 11th of September 2001. You know, it is one of those moments, and I've, I've uh, thought after 9-11 that how many times in my lifetime, you know, are there moments that almost all Americans who were alive then, adults at least, or even, you know, even not adults, kids above the age of, I don't know, six or seven or something, would know where we were. You know, Kennedy's assassination was one of those for, for, for my generation. I mean, I was young, a kid, but I remember where I was. I remember being told maybe the landing on the moon. Um weren't that really many, that many others, many historical events. But uh, so 9-11 is very important and usual. I was in D.C. Um, I was having breakfast, actually, at a hotel right near, you know, at a restaurant right near our office, business kind of breakfast with an old friend. And a colleague of mine came down around 8.30 in the morning and said, geez, something's happening in New York, the World Trade Center with plane, one plane is already hit and it could be an attack and you should come back to the office just you know, to see what's going on. And so that's how I heard. I think this was pre-iPhone, of course, and stuff. So you didn't have that instant, uh, you know, uh, access to the internet and, and to everything else that you have, that you have today. Went back to the Weekly Standard office, the magazine I then edited, and uh, actually a couple of people from the White House, which got evacuated a couple of hours later, ended up coming to our office. They were old friends of various people on the magazine to work from there, because again, this is the day when you needed sort of a desktop computer to really do things, and they were trying to help do stuff for the White House, working actually on the president's remarks that night, and they needed a place where they could be given an office and work in you know, peace and be on the phone with their colleagues. So that was our tangential, my tangential connection to, to 9-11. Thank God I didn't, you know, I didn't really know people well who, I knew one or two people who were killed, but not, not too many. It was different in D.C. I mean, our son was in school and just a few miles from the Pentagon when that was hit, he saw the smoke. They, of course, uh, recessed school and sent kids home. The cell phone coverage wasn't working well because it was overburdened. I've always wondered if people in New York and D.C. had a sort of different experience, more personal experience of 9-11 than people around the country. It was a shock to, to all Americans and America rallied and, and so forth. But there's something about if you were in New York or DC, it really, you know, it felt different. Absolutely. I think it did it did hit you differently if you were in one of those two cities. It's interesting as you spoke there about the role even that the Weekly Standard in a way played with with sort of staffers coming to your offices. I, I wanted to ask you in a way about that or also more generally what do you remember of uh, sort of the Bush administration's early response? You you spoke about uh, later about the creation of a sort of new foreign policy approach at the time. Your own brand of also neoconservatism was kind of the talk of the town. But it's aside from that, it's easy to kind of talk in hindsight. But what do you remember of those early days of the Bush administration? You even had staffers in your office. What? How are they thinking? How are they going about building a response? I think that was really shocked, and it took a little while for people to get their head around what had happened. We had had a piece in the Weekly Standard maybe a month or two before saying, you know, we need to get serious about terrorism. The USS Cole had been attacked. We mentioned bin Laden and al-Qaeda. So uh, maybe we were a little more aware of the threat, but of course, no one expected 9-11. So the president was flying, of course, wasn't in, in, in D.C. and was flown to other to Air Force bases, I guess, to be kept safe. And he gave a speech that night where he was good, but not 
clearly shaken, I would say. It took a few days for, for, for the president, I think, for people to really get their head around it. And then the president looked resolute at ground zero and gave a couple of very good speeches at the cathedral and Congress. And so, but the first day or two were, were shakier. I remember the one thing I, 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 so they asked me to be on the news hour that night. They were scrambling to get guests, I guess, and and just to discuss what the meaning of this was. And, you know, I, I actually made it to, got to the studio despite traffic being sort of shut down in DC and so forth. And um, I don't remember anything about the discussion, except I think I just said in passing almost, I mean, this is a huge day, obviously. Maybe it'll be a defining day for years or even decades. Who knows? Uh, and the most practical, uh, probable effect, though, the nearest-term effect, is I assume we'll have to go to war in some way or other in Afghanistan to get rid of al-Qaeda and to prevent it from being used for further attacks. And I remember the moderator was very sort of surprised by this. He wasn't, you know, appalled or, 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 or you know, uh, didn't think that was I was wrong, really. He just hadn't really begun to think through. People were so much in the grieving state and in the incredible stories of heroism on Flight 93, which was beginning to come out. They, they didn't really realize, I think, we didn't all realize quite right away that this was, certainly if you had said then, this is going to be the beginning of a 20-year effort in Afghanistan, people would not have uh, quite believed that, I think. I, I think that's certainly true from those, those very early days. I mean, Afghanistan, of course, is on everyone's minds uh, as we head into this anniversary tomorrow. I did want to ask you, it, it does feel like the days of that sort of American interventionism, in a way, are, are over. Donald Trump had made that clear with his deal on Afghanistan, and Biden has kind of picked up from that with also his, you know, pretty unapologetic approach to exiting Afghanistan. What is your feeling heading into, you know, as you said, this this 20-year war and this exit? Where do you see American foreign policy going now? I think it's uncertain. I think we're tired of the war, understandably, and, and both Presidents Trump and Biden wanted to get out, and President Biden has gotten us out militarily. I think people are underestimating what was achieved, not just in Afghanistan, but really the lack of a major uh, successful second attack here, and generally a damping down of the terror threat, I think, around the world, because we were pretty aggressive elsewhere. When we pulled back as in Iraq, uh, terror reared its very ugly head with, with ISIS or ISIL in Iraq and Syria, and then in, uh, in Europe in 2015. But then we you know, got serious again and, and, and pretty much crushed the Islamic State there. Uh, hopefully that doesn't happen again, you know. But I, I, I think people are underestimating the degree to which we did take the steam out of the appeal of terrorism, if, if you want to put it that way. Bin Laden famously said, People like the strong horse, not the weak horse. And one forgets how very reasonable people were worried, and it seemed quite possible in 2001, 2002, that you could have a multi-decade problem of, of major uh, scope with Islamist radicalism and terrorism and Wahhabism and that would disrupt the entire Islamic world and, of course, be threats to the non-Islamic world as well. And I, you know, there've been a lot of problems, a lot of tragedy, a lot of challenges, but I don't think that's happened. So you don't get credit in politics often for stopping something even worse from happening, you know, and the war was difficult in Afghanistan and there were failures elsewhere in the world in the war on terror. And we overdid some things and we pulled back too early in other places. And uh, so I don't mean to minimize any of that. But I think if you look at what reasonable people, not alarmists, were saying in the weeks and months after 9-11, and what things could be like for the next decade or two. I think in a way we've, we've avoided the worst of that, at least. That was Bill Crystal, editor-at-large at The Bulwark, in conversation with Monaco's news editor Chris Chemek for Friday's edition of The Globalist. 
Staying with 9-11 commemorations, now as for this week's letter from New York City, Henry Ree Sheridan takes stock of what the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks mean for the city. It's 8.52 here in New York. I'm Brian Gumble. We understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. You're looking at the uh, World Trade Center. We understand that a plane So you have has no idea right now? Oh, there's another one. Another plane just hit. Right. Oh, my God. Another plane has just hit. It hit another building. Flew right into the middle of it. Looks like six, seven floors were taken out. And there's more oh, there's, explosions oh, right now. Hold on, people are running. Wait, hold, so hold on. on just a moment. We've got an explosion inside. The that... building's exploding right now. you got people running up the street. Okay. The 20th anniversary of 9-11 will be marked in familiar ways. As has happened every year since 2002, the names of those who died will be read aloud in an official ceremony. Two beams representing the Twin Towers will be shone into the air from Lower Manhattan, visible from miles around. These official rituals are moving and apt. They rightly focus on the victims of the attacks and their families, rather than the messy political symbolism that became attached to the event almost immediately. But they are only a small part of the way New York City marks 9-11. A better indication of how large the day looms in the city's collective imagination are the hundreds, perhaps thousands, of local permanent memorials. These have been erected throughout the city by its residents with varying degrees of official endorsement. At the more formal end of the spectrum, there are dozens of streets and emergency vehicles named after the first responders who lost their lives in the towers. Then there are the community-erected memorials, such as the one on the corner of Concilia Street and Graham Avenue in Williamsburg. An inscription says the memorial marks the spot from where local residents watched the towers fall. Among the least formal memorials are the graffiti murals commemorating the event and its victims on walls in all five boroughs. The consequences of 9-11 were seismic and perhaps unknowable in the fullness of their complexity. But there are three specific effects the attacks had on New York City itself, which are worth mentioning here for their long historical shadows. First, the disaster engendered a greater degree of awareness of and respect for the sacrifices asked of emergency workers in their line of work. 412 emergency workers died responding to the attacks on the World Trade Center. They were immediately immortalized as heroes along with their colleagues. But while symbolic tributes amassed, material support for survivors was harder to win. It was only in July of 2019 that the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund, which pays out claims for deaths and illnesses related to the attack, was permanently signed into law. Today, we strive to fulfill our sacred duty to you. We love you, we honor you, and we thank you. God bless you all. Now I'm going to sign this bill into law. And I don't know if this stage will hold it, but if it doesn't, we're not falling very far. But I'd like to ask the families, and I'd also like to ask the first responders to come up. 
Second, the area of Lower Manhattan, where the towers once stood, has been rebuilt. The World Trade Center site is now home to the Freedom Tower, America's tallest building, and the 9-11 Memorial and Museum. For me, the reimagined site strikes an admirable balance between paying tribute to a tragic past while looking forward to a brighter future. Finally, in the immediate aftermath of the attacks, New York City became representative of the USA as a whole. It was from the rubble of the Twin Towers that President George W. Bush rallied the nation. Sympathy poured out to New York from across the country. I can hear you! <laughs> I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people... And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. The usual dynamic between NYC and the rest of America, with New Yorkers often seen as separate from the rest of the country along every important dimension, a characterization they are happy to endorse, was temporarily suspended. There were echoes of this in the early months of coronavirus in America. As New York became the epicenter of the pandemic in the country, an anxious nation tuned into then-New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's daily briefings in record numbers. It's not the only parallel between the effects of 9-11 and the impact the coronavirus has had on the city. Both events took a brutal toll on Lower Manhattan in particular. Both had devastating repercussions for the city's economy, and both emptied New York's famously busy streets, with some residents simply choosing to leave. Last year, the former White House adviser Ben Rhodes wrote that the coronavirus signals the closing of the chapter of American history, defined by 9-11. It's sad to think that a historical chapter opened by a catastrophe can only be supplanted by a new one opened by an equal if not greater catastrophe. But New Yorkers in particular should take solace in the fact that they have recovered from an enormous crisis once and feel confident in their ability to do it again. It's only fitting that this week's edition of Tall Stories comes from New York. For the latest episode, Monaco's Chris Jemmock assesses the evolution of the space left behind after the World Trade Center attacks in New York. There's one couple wiping away tears, another placing flowers. A few are scrolling through the 2,983 names, looking for someone inscribed on the bronze parapets that surround the waterfalls. But there are also tourists, and those taking pictures. I watch one young couple spend about ten minutes wandering from corner to corner of the 9-11 memorial, trying to find just the right angle against the sun for the perfect snap. They must have taken about two dozen pictures before wandering off again, looking intently at their phone cameras, analyzing the results. Me? I'm standing by the edge, just staring out at the waterfall, the largest man-made waterfall in North America, I might add, which is flowing below me in one of the two footprints of where the Twin Towers once stood. My moment of quiet contemplation is interrupted by a security guard. 
Plaza's closing, plaza's closing. Make your way to the exits. The Memorial Park, rather oddly, closes at 5 p.m. every day, even though it's essentially an open space in the heart of downtown New York. So I wander out again. There's people sitting on benches and alongside the new World Trade Center shopping plaza, smiling and talking, or just taking in some rays on a sunny day. I know it's a strange thing to say, but for someone like me who remembers September 11th, 2001 so vividly, I was struck by just how normal everything seems. I personally haven't lost anyone in the attacks, but I do like to think of myself as a New Yorker. Well, sort of. My mother was born in Brooklyn, and I have family on Long Island. Even if I haven't lived here since I was four years old, New York has always maintained a special place for me growing up. We'd visit most summers. And more than anything else, my fascination with New York extended to baseball. My uncle and grandfather were die-hard New York Yankees fans, and my uncle would take me to games when I was back. But my fascination also extended to the World Trade Center. Like so many New Yorkers, my grandfather worked there for a time. The towers were omnipresent, viewable from so many different points in the city. Just two weeks before the September 11th attacks, I remember sitting by the South Street seaport with my parents on a visit to the Big Apple remarking on the Twin Towers and how they filled the skyline. In the immediate aftermath of the attacks, I particularly remember Mayor Rudy Giuliani doing what mayors do, leading his city through a crisis, and talking of his personal pain and how the city would recover. I thank God that I'm, that I'm safe. I feel terrible for the people that, that we've lost, some of whom I talked to just 15 minutes before we lost them. And uh, the city is going to survive. We're going to get through it. It's going to be a very, very difficult time. I, I don't think we yet know the pain that we're going to feel when we find out who we lost. But the thing we have to focus on now is getting the city through this. And then, over the past 20 years, I've made a point of heading back to the site of the Twin Towers almost any time I've come back to New York. So, unlike your typical New Yorker, I've watched the site's evolution in stages, a sort of bird's-eye view of the site's development from ground zero to the cleanup operation to a giant building site to the beautifully crafted memorial of Twin Waterfalls, to the incredibly moving Memorial Museum, and eventually the shiny new skyscrapers and shopping malls. Each trip has felt emotional in a different way. It's almost like I've parachuted into the different stages of grief, offering a window into how a city and its people cope with a loss, then recover, and eventually, with time, go about their daily lives with the event a more distant memory. I remember the shock, anger, and defiance most in the early stages, when George W. Bush visited Ground Zero. I can hear you! I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people... And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. The denial and pain stages came for me when I visited Ground Zero for the first time after the attacks. I remember being dumbstruck by just the emptiness of it, the sheer amount of space in the heart of a city, a place that was once so bustling and busy and alive. On the 10th anniversary, I took one of the many tours of the site organized at the time by survivors and victims' family members. You might call this the first stage of recovery. For many of these guides, offering tours and talking through their personal experiences with perfect strangers was cathartic, a form of healing. I'm not sure I could talk through something so personal that has happened to me, but I admired these people for telling their stories to a new generation of visitors to New York, keeping the memory alive. 
A few years later, the memory of that day was finally immortalized, with the opening of a beautifully crafted memorial in the footprints of the Twin Towers. Visiting that space for the first time, I was moved to tears. My own stage of acceptance, I guess, even if I hadn't lost anybody personally. And then, when I first visited the 9-11 memorial about four years ago, suddenly it had shifted to a whole other level that doesn't even really count on the stages of grief. 9-11 had become history. I'll never forget the sight of a father explaining to his curious child the memories of that day. It was the first time I'd been to a museum of an event that I'd lived through and still remember so vividly, the first experience of seeing a seminal event pass from being a current event to a historical memory. And then there was two weeks ago. This time it was the most developed I'd ever seen it. I arrived in the newly built World Trade Center station and the all-white, all-shiny Westfield shopping mall that surrounds it. From there I emerged up an escalator into a fully rebuilt plaza, bar one still pending skyscraper, to see everyone going about their business. I guess I shouldn't be surprised. It's not like I expected everyone to walk by the memorial site with their heads down in quiet contemplation or grief. Life for any city does go on. We rebuild, and rightly so. And as we look ahead to the 20th anniversary of 9-11 on Saturday, I guess all we can hope for is that the memory of the seminal moments of a city are best preserved for an old and new generation alike to experience. I think anyone who's visited the site of the 9-11 Memorial and Museum will agree. New York has done an impressive job of that. Monocle's Chris Jermack there. Still to come here on The Curator, the iconic title Private I celebrates 60 years. We tuck into a delicious tofu recipe and we sit down with the gentlewoman's Penny Martin to hear about a new anthology of essays tackling modern conundrums. Stay tuned. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are with the curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monocle 24 and by Marcus Hippie. Our next highlight comes from my show. It is, of course, Food Neighbourhoods. This week we tucked into a delicious tofu recipe by Bonnie Chung, founder of food brand Miso Tasty and author of new book Tofu Tasty. Let's have a listen. I'm Bonnie, founder of Miso Tasty, which is a food brand specialising in miso. I'm here to talk about my favourite tofu recipe from my new cookbook, Tofu Tasty, and that's the Korean fried tofu lettuce wraps. I've chosen this recipe because I think it's an absolute crowd pleaser and for those who are a little uninitiated when it comes to tofu, this one will not let you down. It's full of zingy, sweet, spicy flavours. It's crunchy and super satisfying. So here's how you make it. First of all, you need a big block of tofu. So I really recommend getting a firm tofu, which you drain get all the water out and then simply you chop them into bite-sized pieces little cubes would be perfect in a separate bowl all you need is some corn flour if you don't have corn flour plain flour is okay as well toss the tofu through so that the flour is coating all the sides this is really to get that crunch that contrast that you want when you bite into the tofu now you need to get a wide saucepan 
fill it with about a centimetre of oil and once that's heated up you add the tofu pieces one by one and over a number of minutes three to four minutes I'd say you start getting a nice crunchy golden edges around each tofu piece keep flipping the tofu until all the sides are nice and golden and then you need to just set it aside on some kitchen towel just to absorb some of the excess oil now at this stage the tofu is really already very delicious you know the crunchy crispiness that you've created is going to contrast beautifully with the creamy soft center of the tofu. The next stage of the recipe is about applying the sauce. So on this Korean inspired sauce, if anyone's tried Korean chicken before, they're going to love this. It's really tangy, sweet and spicy. So to make the sauce, grab a mixing bowl. You need gochujang, which is a Korean chili paste. Then you've got a little bit of miso, tomato ketchup, some sugar and some vinegar. You mix it all up so it's a nice bright orange colour and then warm it up in a saucepan. And once it starts to bubble, that's when you add your crispy tofu pieces you don't want to cook it for too long you don't want to remove any of the crispiness so toss it through slowly and once all the sides of the tofu is coated in bright orange sauce that's when you can lift it from the pan and serve up I love to serve this tofu recipe with crispy gem lettuce or some salad. Nice little boats of lettuce can carry each little handful of tofu for your guests. And this is a fantastic dish to share in the summertime. So there you go. You've got crispy Korean fried tofu lettuce wraps. Bonnie Jung or food brand miso tasty there. Up next, a look back to last Saturday's edition of The Stack. The show focused on the iconic title Private Eye. The satirical British publication is very much a success in the newsstand. Its circulation keeps on rising. To celebrate Private Eye's 60 years, Adam McQueen, who has worked at the title since the beginning of the Blair years, decided to launch a book, Private Eye, the 60-year book. The book is, in fact, Private Eye's take on everything that happened between 1961 and 2021. Monocle 24's head of radio, Tom Edwards, who is also a big fan of this title, spoke to Adam about the book. Remember my very, very first day, I literally had arrived on work experience and I was in for a week and it was Ian Hislop's then uh, secretary and PA, who's uh, called Hilary Lowinger. She's retired now, but she literally, my, my journalistic training in total consisted of her showing me to an empty office and saying, that's a computer, that's an in-tray, and that's your phone, okay? And leaving me to it. And I think <laughs> it was kind of journalism through panic. I was just so terrified. I sat down and started calling people and researching stories and, and ended up writing about 10 stories, I think, three of which got in the magazine, none of which particularly stand up to scrutiny now. It's quite embarrassing to look back on them. But yeah, I, I loved it. It was a fantastic place to be. One of the nicest things. I mean, at the moment, we've all been working from home, obviously, for the last 18 months because of the pandemic. But my seat in the office, uh, which I've held on to ever since those days, is right next to uh, what we call the joke writing room, which is Ian Hislop, the editor's office. And um, in there, you get various combinations of people like Ian and Nick Newman. And it was Richard Ingrams and Christopher Booker and Barry Fantoni. The, the guys who'd been there right from the beginning. And now people like um, Giles Pilbrow and Colin Swash all coming in there and having these communal joke writing sessions. And it's such a pleasure when you're next door kind of bashing out an investigative piece on on some politician uh, who's been doing something naughty. Just to hear the gales of laughter that come out of that because the, the joke writing is done basically as a, a competition to see who can make each other laugh the most and try and try and top each other's laugh each time. So that, that, that makes for a really nice atmosphere to be working in. 
Well, I was going to ask you a bit about this sort of strange alchemy of the eye, because our listeners, and we have listeners all around the world, many of them are familiar with the eye in, in any case, but for, for the uninitiated, just give us a bit more context there, because people may think that they're familiar with the satire, the spoofs, you know, many of which have been running for, you know, well, five decades or so now. But there is that real heft. You talk about writing the sort of the exposés, there's corruption exposed, misdeeds revealed in public office and private miscarriages of justice righted often that takes a very very long time but it is a strange mix isn't it of the as you say gales of laughter and then the profoundly serious almost at once it is a really really weird mix and i always think i mean it's kind of grown organically over those 60 years if you try to pitch this now to a publishing company if you said uh so it's going to be a magazine it's going to do some serious investigative stuff it's going to expose a lot of government corruption and tax avoidance and that sort of thing. Um, there's also going to be some pages in the back that are devoted to campaigning for miscarriages of justice, sometimes for decades at a time, that make really, really difficult reading. You know, people who've been wrongly convicted of murder or people dying in horrible conditions in prisons or in care homes that aren't, aren't properly looked after and things like that. And then in the middle, there's going to be several pages of jokes some of which are going to be so tasteless that you'll regularly get readers uh, cancelling their subscriptions. And then cartoons liberally uh, scattered over the whole thing. And any publisher would just go, what? That's like four or five different magazines. And that's even before you get onto the specialist columnists like um, Phil Hammond, MD, who has been doing some absolutely superlative coverage of the uh, coronavirus crisis and the mishandling of that in, in the Department of Health. We've got agribusiness, a very, very insightful um, column on farming. We've got another one by an expert on trains writing about the state of the railways who's been there ever since the uh, the railways were madly privatised in the UK in the 1990s. An architecture correspondent as well who, um, who uh, doesn't tend to write about beautiful new buildings, he writes about terrible new buildings and, and old buildings not being looked after. So it's this sort of mad mix of absolutely everything, but it, it, it does somehow work. And I think one of the reasons it works is that the, the different bits of it kind of level out each other. Because I think if you've just got a solid diet of the sort of corruption and bribery and ineptitude of government and the, the revolving door between um, big business and, and, and the civil service and stuff and the miscarriages of justice, it would be a really, really depressing read. So you really, really need those jokes in the middle to kind of, um, when your blood pressure rises too high with anger at it all, you need something to kind of calm you down and, uh, and make you laugh at the state of the world as well. So, so that works really, really well. I, I always remember... Paul Foote, who was kind of the doyen of investigative journalists and a really, really important part of Private Eye for the first first four decades at least, he always used to say that uh, he knew and he was absolutely fine with the fact that his stuff at the back, the miscarriages of justice and things, was the stuff that got read about two weeks after the rest of it on the toilet because people turned to the jokes first and read them. But, you know, he knew that that was a way to get an audience for this slightly more difficult stuff that people really, really needed to know about was to kind of smuggle it in there with some jokes and, uh, and, and it would get the audience that it needed. Well, you've mentioned you've reeled off so many of these stellar names already, mentioning Paul Foote there, but you've got, yeah, Peter Cook, Richard Ingrams, Craig Brown, Ian Hislop, of course, still the editor, real masters of their craft and cartoonists as well. Heath Rushton, Scarf Nick Newman, who's been on this programme. How did you then pick and choose um, when you're sort of tasked with curating from such a trove? Where do you start? I guess you just have to kind of go with your favourites, but how do you do it? So I was lucky. I said to Ian when I pitched this book, uh, I said, it's not going to be the best of private eye because that would just be mind blowing you difficult to do. I said it's going to be the history of the last 60 years as seen through the pages of private eye. My, my working title for it was dot, 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 as seen by private eye. 
uh, and I pitched it, you know, it'll be the Falklands War as seen by private eye, it'll be the moon landings seen by private eye, it'll be Mrs. Thatcher as seen by private eye. And that was literally how we did it. I went through year by year and I, I had a list of all the kind of the big stories that I needed to hit in that year. And of course, the nature of that is that you do end up with something that is effectively the best of private eye, because if you're going to do Mrs. Thatcher, you're going to do the Dear Bill letters, which ran in private eye, uh, the, the letters supposedly from, from Dennis Thatcher, her husband, to his golfing partner, Bill, uh, throughout her reign. Uh, you're going to have Mrs. Wilson's diary, which was the first of those kind of big spoofs when Harold Wilson was in Downing Street. You're going to have lots of the famous bubble covers, which are probably the thing that, that, that Private Eye is best known for. And inevitably, you're going to end up having some of those amazing cartoonists that, that you named, like Gerald Scarf and Ralph Steadman and, 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 and Nick Newman and Ken Pine. You know, they're, they're all going to end up in there as well. So it kind of becomes this thing, but it is it is. It starts off as being a, a kind of alternative history of those of those last uh, sixty years as well. And the amazing thing was, Ian was very keen that it should reflect both sides of the magazine. So for every year, we have not only how we covered the big stories elsewhere, but the big stories that the eye was breaking those years as well. And it's amazing how many of those have stood the test of time. Right back to nineteen sixty four, when you mentioned him, our, our proprietor then Peter Cook guest edited an edition when um, Richard Ingram's the then editor was on holiday. And just decided to name the Cray twins, who were these gangsters who were terrorising London at the time. And they'd been kind of talked about in hushed tones in various newspapers and things, never brought to justice at that point. And Peter Cook said, I'm just going to name them. I'm going to put their names in, uh, in private eye. And he did so. And then he went on holiday next week uh, and let Richard come back and take any repercussions that might have been coming his, coming his way. Instead of publish and be damned, he just said, publish and be absent, which I think is quite a good policy. Adam McQueen, author of Private Eye, the 60-year book, in conversation with Monocle's Tom Edwards for last weekend's edition of The Stack. Staying in the world of print now for our final highlight of the show. The Gentlewoman has just released an anthology of essays from its magazine under the title Modern Manners, which tackles modern conundrums such as re-gifting and what to write on your out-of-office email or to reply to age-old ones such as how to say sorry and how to arrive solo at a party. While it's very funny, it's also very useful and sets an agenda for contemporary living. This week on Monocle on Culture, the gentlewoman's editor-in-chief, Penny Martin, joined Robert Bound to tell him more about it. The commissioning of this thing, every single essay sings, is so wonderful. Thank you. And I, I, I love that, the subtle politics of essays like Inside Pocket. Ah, Susan Irvin. Well, I'll tell you how that one came. We were at lunch and she was wearing a helmet-lined jacket and she reached into inside her jacket and I was like, you've got an inside pocket. And she said, I'll tell you what, Helmut Lang used to, to create two inside pockets. And we were like, why on earth do women not ha- have inside pockets? And she said, well, you know, we're always told that it spo- spoils the line where the breasts should be, I guess. But she said, but I don't see why that's confined to a jacket because, you know, in their own way, trou- men's trousers have to accommodate plenty. And uh, well, hopefully... And, um, you know, and they're designed to accommodate that. And we thought, well, that's quite an interesting idea. And, you know, that had took on a life of its own um, because when we were invited by Tecla to do a product collaboration with them, the nightwear and um, textiles company, they're uh, Danish, I thought, right, well, why don't we put one on the inside of a pair of pyjamas? Because, you know, quite often you're on a flight and you need to take a few sort of necessaries to the bathroom, but you don't want to lug a giant big... A bag with you or you could put your sleeping pill in there or your you know so there was this kind of idea about the sort of slight 
completely superfluous edition of an inside pocket on pajamas. So it, it had a, a sort of third life, if you like. But um, yeah, in a way, that's a kind of campaigning moment, but executed in a kind of charming way. And she's such a great writer. I mean, that's the thing about these smaller pieces. An independent publication like us, I mean, let's be honest, the style press, there's not a huge amount of expectation about the standard of writing in uh, independent public fashion publications. So for one thing, I'm incredibly proud that we could <laughs> publish something that's a standalone uh, publication devoted to our writing. And, you know, a lot of that's to do with the fact that, you know, what resources our company has um, can be poured into shorter pieces where we can attract a really high standard of writer that perhaps might not be able to contribute a 3000 word interview for us, but they might do a, a smart 300 word piece um, and be pleased to be in the context. So, you know, that's a real delight for the team and for me. That there is such a nice mixture of, as you said, that there's an essay on excess, and that's excellent, um, <laughs> and it's a wonderful piece. And also, you know, the idea of the small poor and having one drink at the bar, I think that's Anne Friedman's piece as well. Yeah, the small poor was something I noticed at Noble Rock, where they, they serve a half glass of wine, so you could just about sneak something in at lunchtime. Um, and I <laughs> and just asked uh, Marina who, uh, O'Glocklin, who's, of course, connected with that restaurant, just to write a little bit about the sort of pleasures of a much smaller uh, intake, uh, which is just a kind of nice, fun piece. And then, you know, of course, that extends to, we've included some of the lists that we sometimes publish in uh, The Gentle Woman, which give us an opportunity to reach out to a much bigger range of women than we would ever be able to include in the magazine. We only do sort of eight or 10 interviews per issue, and we only come out twice a year. So, of course, that's quite limited and uh, it gives us a chance to be very sort of deep with those people. However, if you balanced with something that Fantastic Man do really well, you know, you might ask one question, but put it to 30 different people and then print a digest of 30 different answers to that. So there's things like, you know, what do you give as a gift? Or I love that. I loved how many, I was surprised how many people give jewellery as a gift, but then maybe I just yeah. don't mix in the right circle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not hanging my... out Claudia Schiffer enough. <laughs> yeah, you should, because it puts my um, vest to shame. <laughs> <laughs> it did. <laughs> it did slightly, Penny. I didn't want to yeah. say anything. But, you know. Yeah, I've upped my game since those days. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, obviously that extends to, you know, what was your first job? And those aren't specifically about etiquette, of course, but what they do is they provide a kind of range of tips from women, from Hilary Mantel to uh, Kylie to Otega Wagba, you know, a whole different bunch of people. And that's just to give a sense of the kind of range of the women that we like and we we uh, solicit advice from and, and therefore what you end up also with the magazine is a kind of constellation of all the women that we think are interesting and valid over the last 10 years and that creates a bit of a kind of society of smart women um, by default so I'm pleased that that's another upshot where you kind of get this sense of a community and you know of course style magazines are always a, supposedly about community they're often about a kind of rather exclusive community of people that are fashionable and they're all sort of photographed around this kind of figurative swimming pool as if they all hang out together that's hopefully not the impression we try to give by asking very prosaic things of them like you know what were you doing 10 years ago <laughs> it's great stuff isn't it? you get so it's so wonderful it's it's always heartening and surprising in equal measure and i think inspiring as well for people that aren't there yet or whatever and it's just nice and diverting for people that 
you know, are somewhere. I think it's, I, you know, it's a bit of nosy parkering as well, isn't it? We love to know about that stuff. <laughs> that's right? the second time a journalist has called me nosy. I think that is absolutely right that that's the way that um, uh, the gentlewoman gets commissioned. <laughs> the, <laughs> nosy parkering, yes. though, with a sense, surely a small sense of irony. I like the curiosity of the born editor, Penny. That's that's purely it. Well, I am curious. <laughs> and, I think, you know, in my teens, I can remember my friends used to always say to me that, you know, my most favourite words were could I, would I, should I, where I'm always asking advice myself. So in a way, you know, one of the pleasures of being an editor of a magazine like this is I get to answer my own questions. So if I need to know how to throw a party, you know, or, you know, is it actually acceptable to re-gift a lovely present? You know, I get the smartest women that I know to answer it for me. Lucky me. The gentlewoman's editor-in-chief, Penny Martin, speaking to Monaco's Robert Bound there. And that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by Sam Impey and presented by me, Marcus Hippie. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monaco 24. And thanks for listening.